As more and more disciples wake up to the Jewishness of Jesus, voices from across the spectrum of Christian faith are beginning to chime in. Our guests today are the hosts of the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast, and they're passionate about educating the followers of Jesus about the Jewish context of the New Testament. Put your hand and mind together We will walk in harmony Let me introduce you to my teacher The rabbi from the Galilee You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Well, welcome back to Messiah Podcast. I'm Stephanie Hammond, and I'm here with my co-host, Jacob Franzak. What's up, Jacob? How are you? Oh, I'm all right. You know, it's summer vacation, so the kids are all over the place, which is lots of fun. They are. It's always summer vacation at my house with a seven-month-old, but... (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're going to need a vacation pretty soon here. I am definitely going to need a vacation, but um, I'll take what I can get. Right now, I have my coffee, and uh, (laughs) that's good enough for me. There you go. Well, today on the podcast, we have some guests you've probably heard of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're all big fans here. Yeah, exactly. We're finally able to sit down with the guys from the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast. Try to say that three times fast. I have tried. I'm not going to try it uh, on, on <laughs> yeah. camera here. But uh, yeah, our, our listeners might not know this, but behind the scenes here at First Fruits of Zion, we've been listening to this podcast uh, just about since they started it. And it's been fascinating to see that apparently we have some kindred spirits out there in uh, in the church world. Right. And these guys really know what they're talking about. You have one who's a pastor, one who's a campus minister, and the other is in the mission field. Yeah. And they're all on board with the Jewish Jesus and, and an apocalyptic Jewish interpretation of the New Testament. Okay. Now help me out here. When you say apocalyptic, do you mean the end of time, Armageddon, or what does apocalyptic mean in this context specifically? I mean, basically, yes, sort of. So um, Judaism in Jesus' time and um, traditional Judaism still today sees this age coming to a definitive end. Like when Messiah comes, he'll regather the Jewish people, he'll rebuild the temple. But like the rest of the world changes dramatically, like ecology, politics, everything is going to be completely different. And this era, you know, the world as we know it will end and a totally new era will begin here on earth. And that's that's basically apoc- apocalypticism. Apocalypticism. I, I can't even say it one time fast. Apoc- <laughs> I know, right? No, I, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> Hence the challenge. Um, okay, but that's what I thought. But don't Christians, don't Christians believe that too? Like all that left behind stuff from our childhood seems like it would be in the apocalyptic category. Yeah, you know, and it is. A lot of Christians have recovered an apocalyptic sort of worldview, particularly dispensationalists, you know, the, the tribulation and the messianic era that comes after that, that, that is apocalypticism. Um, yeah. but th- there's a couple of things, right? So for, uh, for one thing, um, for even for dispensationalists, Israel is not really taking center stage, at least not right now. Well, that's true. Um, and second of all, for most of church history, we didn't have dispensationalism for m- most church, like historical, um, Christian theology is not apocalyptic. People just thought, oh, the church 
as it exists now is somehow fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies about Israel being regathered and the new temple and the transformation of the world and all of that. And, and for a lot of people, it just sort of became about like going to heaven after you die. And, and I think for a lot of people, it still is about that. I see. Yeah, that actually makes that makes a lot more sense. So this apocalyptic mindset uh, might be a pretty big paradigm shift for some people who are listening today. Yeah, yeah, but it's important. Like, it's a return to a, a biblical worldview, the worldview of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, so, so important mm -hmm. that uh, that we talked about it for two hours with uh, with these guys. <laughs> yeah, we definitely did. So, we're actually going to take the unprecedented step of splitting the interview into two episodes. Oh yeah, tune in this time and tune in next time. So we sat down with Bill, Josh, and John from the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast, and they've been building the case for this reading of the New Testament with their podcast. And we asked them about the first century gospel, about Jewish apocalypticism, and how a Jewish reading of the New Testament might change the church. Now, not just a Jewish reading of the New Testament. When we say that, we're talking about the original context that the New Testament was written in, just to clarify and how this might change the church in the future. All this and more coming up on Messiah Podcast. All right, Josh, John, and Bill from the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast. Welcome to Messiah Podcast. Thanks. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah, Thanks really for having us. Yeah. We're really thrilled that you guys are here. You have a lot of fans on our staff. I mean, we all know who you are and what you're up to with your podcast, but for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, who are you and okay. what is the ap apocalyptic, if I can even say it right, what is the apocalyptic gospel podcast? Do you guys get tongue twisted on sometimes, that one Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, you know, we, we've gotten to the point where we've made up some words. We don't know if the word apocalypticization <laughs> is actually a word, but uh, that's that's one thing. Oh, it should be. Indeed, well, we, indeed yeah, it we should be. Well, use it. It's a great word. Love it. Well, sure. Well, it, it's again, it's great to be with each of you this morning and all of your listeners. It's great to, to be with you as well. And uh, just a little bit on our podcast. We uh, are our heart really behind why we do what we do is to explore the gospel as a first century Jew would have understood it, because a conversation typically about the gospel or the kingdom of God or the day of the Lord in the first century really would have evoked a, a larger body of ideas that's not immediately present when someone opens up the scriptures or does a simple word study of those terms. And so uh, what we typically do is we'll open up some passage from the Tanakh or from the New Testament and uh, work through it. We've I think we're in our fourth season at this point. Uh, oh, our first season, we've developed uh, just the, the, the basic foundations of what we would call first century Jewish apocalypticism uh, and working through Paul's gospel. Uh, our second season, we decided, you know what, we want to have people on our show who have been living out what it actually practically looks like to live out a life focused on the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord uh, and the age to come. These These ideas that would have been very familiar to those Jews in the first century and, and what that looks like. So we interviewed a bunch of people in our second season. Our third season, we decided to go back to the Tanakh and begin working through the Tanakh and, and seeing how the uh, themes and the ideas throughout the Tanakh were pushed forward to their ultimate end by the writers of Second Temple literature. And now in our fourth season, we've been developing the parables of Jesus. Uh, and so, yeah, we've uh, it's pretty amazing. We've been going since 2020 at this point. Bill and John, why don't you guys tell the story of, of how we decided to even begin this whole thing? We were, uh, we were bored 
John and I, and we were talking. <laughs> we, we were in lockdown. 2020, right? I was there. Everybody was bored. <laughs> and one day, John called and said, hey, we got to do something. I can't just sit here in my house. Maybe we could try YouTube videos. And we did a few YouTube videos. Well, I was... <laughs> I was I was working I was working on my doctoral thesis at the time and so it was more I'm going to lose my mind if this is all I do and think about. Yeah. Yeah, oh, and, that's right. That's uh, right. So I was bored of working on that. One of us, I don't remember who, thought of uh doing a podcast and then we quickly realized there was no way with our Gen X brains we were going to be able to uh put something <laughs> like that together. So we go I know just the guy Oh. So we gave Josh a holler right away. Bill and I are moderately socially functional, so uh, that's the main reason we got Josh. <laughs> oh, no. to make, You're in good company. To, You're in very good company here. <laughs> I was just going to say, I really like the name, the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast, not just because it's 10 whole syllables, but um, <laughs> because it juxtaposes two words that in the common understanding you, you don't normally hear together. You have gospel, which everybody knows means good news. And then you have a, a apocalyptic, which nobody thinks is good news. Right. Very few people are right. looking forward to the apocalypse. Um, we want to try to avoid the apocalypse. Ex can you explain? Well, maybe we should start with gospel. Because gospel is one of those words that like we use all the time uh, in the church. I don't know. Do you guys have a different take on the gospel than the one I heard as a child, which is I should accept Jesus into my heart because he died for my sins? Bill and I went back and forth for some time on on the name. I think the first option was Apocalyptic Musings. We went back and forth on a number of options. I don't remember what they were, but we landed on uh, Apocalyptic Gospel. We knew that it had to be apocalyptic just because of the subject matter. And uh, it's the general tenor of the world right now as uh, things seem to be coming apart. So as far as the gospel... You get a clear statement in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel, brothers, that I preached to you. And that is that what we received and we passed on, that Christ died for our sins. So the death of the Messiah is the heart of the gospel, particularly with Paul um, in the apostolic witness. The question is, what is the narrative within which the death of the Messiah is placed? And so you have a number of major narratives of redemptive history throughout Christian tradition. And the main ones are the Greek narrative, the Roman narrative, and then the naturalistic narrative, uh, or I call it the British narrative because it was a bunch of Brits who came up with it, Hutton and Charles Lyell and Charles Darwin. And, uh, but it's those three narratives along with the Jewish narrative of the first century that usually get mixed together in different flavors uh, throughout history. For example, Augustine, he mixed together the Greek and Roman narrative, the church militant and the church triumphant. Lutherans were more emphasized the Greek narrative, whereas the Reformed tradition, Calvin and Geneva, emphasized the Roman narrative and the expression of divine sovereignty and a kind of a Constantinian push. So the question is, what is the death of the Messiah? What narrative is it placed within? And we're just trying to put the death of the Messiah for our sins within a first century Jewish narrative. And that narrative was highly apocalyptic. Of course, there's lots of different Jewish narratives. Not all Jews 
both now and in history, were apocalyptic. Actually, a, a, a minority of Jews today are apocalyptic, and rabbinic Judaism developed in the second and third century kind of away from apocalypticism. But it's still there. And so we're just trying to put the death of the Messiah within a very specific first century uh, Jewish narrative that was highly apocalyptic, meaning it was focused on a climactic end and and was very two-aged oriented, this age and the age to come. Another thing that stands out uh, in relation to the gospel, the term the gospel is you have strange events like Mark 1, where Jesus appears on the scene suddenly, as everything in Mark happens suddenly. Yes, quite. And it says he is preaching the gospel immediately. Immediately. And he, he's preaching the gospel, <laughs> and nobody stops to ask him what's going on. Of course, this is Mark 1. You know, the death of Jesus happens quite a bit later. And... um you have the same thing in Luke, Luke 3, John the Baptist preaching the gospel, Galatians 3, Abraham heard the gospel. And and so the gospel is an understood narrative coming into the first century within which the death of Jesus is understood. And primarily, if you're talking about which, you know, of course, a lot of the New Testament authors, obviously, especially Paul, are deriving ideas from the Septuagint, the, uh, the term, the gospel actually in the verbal form, um, appears several times in the Hebrew prophets, and it's always speaking about the same thing. It's it's an announcement to Israel about their coming redemption, that, you know, despite the covenant maintenance that was taking place at the time, often uh, judgment or discipline, um, that God in the end would not forget them, that their God would come and would fulfill everything that he said, and Jerusalem would be exalted as the chief among the nations, and and so this this became the narrative within which the death of Jesus was understood. And um, trying to understand it without that narrative has led to a lot of chaos over, over the last couple of millennia. Yeah. To say the least. <laughs> yeah, the whole, the, the good news, right, for me as like a baby Christian was always like the prize is like you get to live forever. It seemed like that was the whole point of everything and like, yeah, the reason that you read the Bible is because you want to have eternal life. And the reason you like to want to have your theology right is because if it's wrong, you might not get eternal life. And like that seems to be it's like this looming. Is that the case in, in the apocalyptic uh, context? Is eternal life still like this really big deal that everyone's trying to figure out how to get? Yeah, for sure. Eternal life is central and eternal life like the cross and the death of the Messiah for our sins gets placed in different narratives. So in the Greek narrative, eternal life means the eternal sing-along on the cloud with a harp, etc. Within kind of the Roman narrative, eternal life is the establishment of a universal utopia on earth through the Roman Empire, through the church, whatever. Mm. Within a Jewish apocalyptic narrative, eternal life is like with the rich young ruler in, in Matthew 19, where he comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, sell everything if you really want to inherit the age to come. He goes away sad. He says it's hard for rich people to inherit the kingdom of God, which is synonymous for first century Jews with the age to come, the resurrection and eternal life. And then his disciples say, well, what about us? We've left everything because we actually want eternal life. 
And Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And you guys who have left everything, house, home, field, etc., will inherit a hundredfold, even eternal life. And so eternal life for a first century Jew involves a new heavens and new earth, the renewal of all things, a glorified Davidic throne in Jerusalem with 12 surrounding thrones from Mount Zion representing the restored 12 tribes. And so that's what they were after. Like the rich young ruler, the guys following Jesus and the crowds who are seeing the miracles were believing this is the Messiah who's going to usher in the day of God, the renewal of all things, the resurrection. So eternal life is it's dependent on what narrative you put it in. So I would say absolutely. The gospel is the Messiah died for us so that we can live forever. You just got to put that in the right narrative of redemptive history. And none of these things that you're describing were were new to a first century Jew, right? This is all already expected. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, th- these are ideas that would have developed throughout the Tanakh and then into Second Temple uh, literature. And then, as Bill said, when Jesus shows up on the scene in Mark 1, what is it? Luke 3, Luke 9, and Luke 20. Three instances in Luke's gospel where Jesus is preaching the gospel without any explanation mm-hmm. and without even saying that he was going to die for sins at that point. Uh, and so having that pre-existing understanding of what these terms were, the gospel, eternal life, the resurrection, the day of the Lord, uh, the kingdom of God, really would have evoked, evoked the same body of ideas and, and the same response, or, or the point was to evoke the same response, which is a response of repentance in light of the soon establishment of that kingdom and of that day. And so, yes, they, they, would, have, mm-hmm. they would have been all familiar to mm-hmm. the hearers of Jesus and the apostles in the first century. Yeah, I think you can boil it down also. The gospel for a first century Jew is just Jewish eschatology. Yeah which involves the resurrection, the age to come, and eternal life. And so the gospel is Jewish eschatology, which Paul assumes. And so when Paul is talking about the death of the Messiah, he views the death of the Messiah as the means to that Jewish eschatology, and that you can't escape the wrath to come, be justified at the judgment, and inherit the resurrection of the dead, attain the resurrection of the dead, as he says in Philippians 3, apart from faith in the death of the Messiah. So Paul, when he's talking about my gospel revolving around the death of the Messiah, he's assuming the the common Jewish eschatology involving the resurrection of the dead in the age to come. With maybe a little twist, because everything we've talked about so far, Jewish eschatology, first century Jewish uh, expectations, certainly this is this is all familiar territory to a first century Jew until... Right. Until Cornelius gets filled with the Holy Spirit. I think you know it all. <laughs> and then the whole book of Acts sort of blows wide open. And because, you know, even like, and maybe you want to start with the Old Testament because as I once looked through the Psalms. I did like a cordance thing and looked through the Psalms, say, what, what were Jewish expectations for people who were not Jewish mm, yeah. in Jew- Jewish eschatology? And it's sort of like, well, half the time it's like all the nations will come and worship the God of Israel. We'll teach, they'll be they'll learn the Torah and they'll all praise uh, the God of Israel and they'll recognize He's the only God. And the other half of the time is kill them all. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> They're all going to die. Right. So, um, <laughs> and then the, the, the prophets, you know, similarly, there's this right. judgment, and then there's also this very hopeful strain of every, everyone's gonna uh, gonna get on on the on the boat here. So. 
how do those expectations shape uh, sort of this this dawning realization as we go through Acts that um, the Gentiles are involved somehow? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, I think, like like you highlighted, Jacob, there's there's a variety of ways of seeing it in in Judaism throughout the ages, and what seems to kind of splinter off during the Second Temple period is there is a group that that does see real prominently. It's a part of the redemption narrative that the nations will actually come back and recognize their folly. Hmm and worship at Jerusalem, and they'll recognize the God of Israel and his election of the people of Israel. Yeah, Those are really the apocalyptic writers, as we call them, the apocalyptic writers, those who envisioned, mm. in the words of a scholar named Paul Hansen, the, the present age was just unsuitable for the playing out of the, of, of the scenario the prophets envisioned. It required a new age to see those things done, and it required the hand of God descending on the earth with a flaming fire to accomplish those things. And so what we call apocalyptic authors or writers or literature on the podcast a lot basically refers to those texts that basically envisioned a two-age scenario where you had this age that was characterized by all of what we see right now and the next age, which will be characterized by eternal life, by the kingdom of God established, by creation being restored, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jerusalem being established as its chief of the nations, not, not uh, one of the least events. And so how did the Gentiles play into that? I always come back to Acts 15. And Acts 15 is, is a strange, strange one to navigate because of how it's been used historically. But all that happens in Acts 15, like the whole conclusion where he is looking back at Amos 9, for some reason, commentators generally stop at the citation of, I will restore the fallen booth of David. But that's not the punchline of Acts, <laughs> of Acts 15. Like, they're reflecting on what happened to Cornelius in Acts 10, and then how people are processing it in, in Acts 11 and onwards. But he continues on, and he said, it will be restored so that the nations can come and, and seek him there, those who are called by his name. Right. And so James stands up and he says, I get it. What's going on is that what's going to take place in the world to come? God is taking a people for his name from among the Gentiles now in light of what's going to come in the future. And this is essentially what launches this missionary movement amongst the Gentiles, the reaffirmation of this apocalyptic scenario of the two-age framework of what's going to come in the future and that it's even more certain now after the resurrection of Jesus. Now we understand that God is actually taking a people for his name that will come and seek the Lord in Zion after that day comes. And so it becomes this fervor to go among the nations and proclaim the gospel there so that they might understand because none of these guys, which is why they bring up the things that are that could disqualify one of these Gentiles, right? Sexual morality, mm-hmm. idolatry, eating food with meat and, and strangled meat, which were essentially common practices of idolatry at the time. Both of them were. And so idolatry and sexual morality are, are generally the, the categories. And so we have to teach them to turn away from those things we know they're going to continue to grow because Moses is taught all over the diaspora, but they have to stay away from those things because God is taking a people from among the nations 
in light of the scenario that the prophets described where the nations will be redeemed and God will have this scenario where the nations come and admit their folly and turn back to him. Yeah, excellent explanation. Right, and the novelty of the Gentiles coming in because the New Testament isn't all just Second Temple Judaism, right? It's not just a rehash. There are actually new things, there are novel things that happen this is the nuts and bolts of what the where the controversy comes in in theological history is the new things in the New Testament in relation to Judaism at the time, which principally are three. There are a number of others, but three main ones, and that's the theologizing about the death of the Messiah, which some Jews did at the time. You can see that in the Targums and in other places, but it's not normal conversation. And then the unique gift of the Spirit. Jews were generally charismatic because they're pre-modern. They believed in miracles. As far as anything like Romans 8, there's nothing like that in Jewish literature. So the unique gift of the Spirit. Hmm. And then the inclusion of the Gentiles, the intentional mission of God to the Gentiles. There's no evidence that Jews sought to intentionally convert Gentiles before, you know, Matthew 28, Acts 10. So those three novelties really are novel. The question is, what is the narrative framework that they're understood within? And are they creating a new one? So throughout Christian theological tradition, those three novelties are used to change the narrative. And so the death of the Messiah, the unique gift of the Spirit, and the mission to the Gentiles means that the resurrection of the body is bad, it's carnal, and it's all part of Jewish mythology, if, if we're talking about like origin and the Alexandrian catechetical school. So you change the narrative to a Greek narrative. So in Acts 15, the presumption is that the Gentiles are being brought in within an unchanged Jewish apocalyptic narrative. And that these Gentiles are simply those Gentiles that are going to inherit the, the age to come as righteous Gentiles. And so this is kind of reflected, I think, in Romans 11 also, where Paul is reflecting on his own mission to the Gentiles. And he says, well, they're being grafted into the hope of eternal life. But the, the Jewish expectation of the future of salvation has not changed even though there's a partial hardening. So the Gentiles in the New Testament simply understood that they were brought, being brought into the Jewish story, like Ephesians 2. They were once alienated and far away, but now they're being brought near to the hope of Israel rather than changing the Jewish story and changing the hope of Israel. Okay, I'm just curious. There's places in the Talmud where it says that certain people among the rabbis and, and the pharisaical sect were actually chiding other people for not bringing in enough converts, like not meeting their quota of converts. There's some evidence of it happening. I'm just curious your take on that and, and how serious they were about that. There is a little bit of controversy on that question. Generally, academic and historian consensus is that that didn't really take place, at least not on a wide scale. Not on one that's really notable. Um, there's the the famous statement of Jesus in in Matthew: "You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte." Amy Gillavine, a Jewish scholar who does a lot of work in the New Testament, she connects that with uh, known dynamics of Pharisees actually trying to convert other Jews to Phariseeism at the time. That's what I was wondering about. Okay. 
the evidence that I've looked at, I, I, I lean that way that there really likely wasn't much of a movement at all. If it was, it was probably small and localized versus universalized across Judaism. I think, you know, Paula Fredrickson, who is a Jewish scholar, teaches at Hebrew University in Boston also. And she's she's very adamant that there's no historical evidence for intentional uh, proselytism within Second Temple Judaism. Talmudic material seems to be fairly anachronistic. It's later on reading back into the first century. As far as actual documents from the first century, there doesn't seem to be any evidence uh, or any certain evidence that this is any kind of common practice. The Matthew 23, historical scholars also frame that as you go over land and sea to confirm a proselyte, like in Acts 8, when you had the people in Samaria coming to the Lord and Peter and John went up to Samaria to confirm that these non-Jewish believers were actually legit, you have the same dynamic happening in the diaspora where the leaders in Jerusalem would travel throughout the diaspora to confirm proselytes. That doesn't mean that in the diaspora, Jews were trying to convert Gentiles. It just means that there are some Gentiles that want to become Jews, and there are leaders in Jerusalem that are going out to confirm those proselytes. Uh, otherwise, there's not any historical evidence beyond the Matthew 23, 15 verse that often gets quoted. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. Okay, so there are individuals in the empire, so to speak, coming to know the God of Israel on their own and asking for confirmation in that new faith. And there's Shaliach sent out to confirm these Gentiles into the new faith. And that happened from rabbinic Judaism and also from <laughs> whatever you want to call us, the, the Nazarenes, the people of the way, the Messianic Jews, uh, we're also doing this. I think of, of uh, Acts 13. So it's when we have Paul's first statement of very well, I'm going to the Gentiles in Acts 13 and city in Antioch. And, and at issue is he brings up Isaiah 49. And typically that's read because he, when, when he goes, everybody loves what he says. And then he say, please come back next week and share these things. And when he comes back, it says almost the whole town came, assuming a large number of Gentiles. And then the, the leaders, the synagogue leaders at the time, it says they become envious or jealous. And so they try to contradict some of the things that he's saying. You know, there's a lot of social dynamics that work there with the empire and the synagogue. But but what he says on leaving is he says, very well, since you guys deem yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to the Gentiles because such the Lord has commanded us. And so there's a lot put in that pronoun us. And, and people generally see that as Paul and Barnabas. I don't think Paul sees it as Paul and Barnabas. I think he sees it as the Jewish people because he quotes Isaiah 49. That's why he, he says, quotes Isaiah, yeah. <laughs> a light to the nations, I've, I've called you. And so moving forward, he, he sees them shrinking back, in my opinion, is probably in light of some complexities with the Roman Empire and telling a, a city full of Gentiles to stop worshiping the gods in that city. And the turmoil that would probably cause with the synagogue. But he basically says, I'm going to go do what God commanded our people to do with no regard for my own life or safety. And if you guys want to sit here and be disobedient, that's up to you. 
and then him and Barnabas leave. Right. And of course, that accounts for how in chapter 14, they go right back to the synagogue system in the, in the next city. But the point is that they went to the Gentiles there in obedience to God, because whether it was clear before, it becomes clear afterwards. And to not do it as a Jew, Paul isn't super tolerant of that afterwards. <laughs> Going back to this novelty of Gentiles coming in, and the reframing of the whole narrative only around the, the things we find in the New Testament that were novel to Second Temple Jewish thought. You mentioned that all these Gentiles coming in would have understood what they were joining, which is a Jewish apocalyptic mindset, a, a group that was centered around those ideas and expectations. And then like 100 years later, 150 years later, which is a long time, you know, for a person, but still... You've got Irenaeus and Justin, you know, Kendall Solon is locating in these, these, this generation already the complete decentering of the Jewish people and the seems like the total abandonment of the Jewish apocalyptic narrative. Um, what happened? Well, that's a great question. I mean, you could at least say from Bar Kokhba on the decentralization of everything centered around Jerusalem and the temple uh, after the destruction of the temple and the scattering away really began to shift the leadership of, of the community from Jews to Gentiles. And these additional narratives, um, you know, because of the influence of, of Gnosticism, uh, and as John was mentioning, the, the Greek narrative, uh, the, lo the looking at the scriptures through that lens really began to shift the way uh, that disciples of Yeshua began to think about the gospel. I think of a, a Jewish scholar who I'm sure you are familiar with, uh, Mark Kinzer, um, talks a lot about this in Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen, uh, his book there. Uh, stunning research and, and stunning book, but uh, how he basically develops this and, and says, yeah, the, the scattering away of the Jewish people from Jerusalem in covenantal maintenance, not as a, uh, as a covenantal annulment, but as, as covenantal maintenance, uh, which I, that's a, you know, side conversation, but uh, really important to recognize that, that, uh, this just because of the leadership shifting from Jews to Gentiles became much more focused on Gentile ideas and Gentile subjects, uh, and decentered from the Jewish, specifically the Jewish apocalyptic narrative uh, that was commonly held during the first century. So yeah, I, I think that's a big point, the, the Bar Kokhba and everything that happened after that and, and the scattering of the Jews from Jerusalem and uh, the, the recentering of the leadership of the community around Gentiles. Yeah, and, and what, what Solon's pointing back to is, is the awkward dynamic that Christian theology was basically built on the foundation of some really polemical letters written in the patristic era. And so it basically somehow became kind of canonized to be anti, in, in, in its worst case, anti-Jewish, in its best case, anti-Jewish narrative. Mm. It became yeah. kind of canonized into Christianity to see those things as inherently, we, we, read those, we read those back into Paul, it's how we read Galatians, it's how we read Romans. How we read, you know, a lot of a lot of his literature is Paul essentially has the attitude of Irenaeus. Paul has the attitude of Justin, but really those are highly polemical letters. They're they're disputes with presumably they're actual Jews, but they're 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 disputes. They're written back and forth, and several of them are actually private correspondence. 
And so how those became like the background for Christian orthodoxy, I I don't know who thought of that, but that was not a good plan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just going to mention the book, The Ways That Never Parted by Becker and Reed talks about how on the on the grounds, regular people who weren't writing letters like this were probably still like talking to Jews and even like visiting synagogues and doing some Jewish stuff for, for like hundreds of years. And this is why you have, you know, even like Chrysostom coming out and say, stop doing this. Because why, right. why you don't have to mm-hmm. tell yeah. someone to stop doing that if they're not, if they're already not doing it. Right. Exactly. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A great book on the subject is uh, a Jewish scholar, Daniel Boyarin. Yes. Who teaches at UC Berkeley. Uh, he's reformed Jewish, but uh, he wrote a book called Borderlines where he kind of details the history of the first two centuries and how it unfolded and how the borderlines between the emergence of rabbinic Judaism and the kind of early church apologist formed and how they started instead of, you know, it went from a Jewish sect in the new Testament in the first century to borderlines are created and differentiations are being made between this new Gentile religion, Christianity versus Judaism, whereas there wasn't anything like that in the first century in the New Testament. Yeah. 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 Well, in the church, in the church, we just kept doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We got got lots of, we got lots of borderlines. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you really can't, you can't underestimate the power of scoffing. When you have the Greek, (laughs) the Greco-Roman world is dominated by this kind of zeitgeist in which the universe is split in two, material and immaterial, and the whole redemptive narrative is the material world is bad, the body is bad, it's the tomb of the soul, the Soma Sema, and the goal of redemptive history is to get out of the material world. Like, that is... You know, Socrates and Phaedo, Plato's, you know, recording of Socrates' death, the whole narrative is that death is a good thing because it delivers us from the body and it delivers us from the material world. And so when Jews are are coming along saying, no, the the universe is good, creation's good, the world is good, and the body is good. It's just we have sin involved and we look forward to the resurrection of the body. And so you can't underestimate the power of those two broad kind of narratives clashing. And then once you get into the early church, you have people scoffing at Jewish mythology. Like, how could you believe in the resurrection of the body? It's such a gross thing. Like, the body's just gross and bad. And so you end up kind of the overwhelming tidal wave of, like Josh was talking about, all the early church leaders become Gentiles and the predominant Gentile narrative is that the material world's bad and the resurrection of the body is just Jewish mythology. So all of these things kind of play together. There's political stuff, there's worldview stuff, there's redemptive narrative stuff going on that leads to the parting of the ways, so to speak. That's really interesting. Just putting it in that context. It's like it became a a fairy tale, folklore, the, the resurrection part. I mean, and um, everything else just became established. The Orthodox theology. Right. So, John, if you don't mind, can you tell us first, what is realized eschatology? And then why do we see it as a problem? 
Um, yeah, realized eschatology is just basically the idea that the eschatology or the future that is common to Jews in, in the Second Temple period or the time of the New Testament is being fulfilled or realized now. So those elements of the resurrection, the day of God, the judgment, the messianic kingdom, that stuff is happening spiritually now or being actualized in some way spiritually now through the church. And so this usually at an academic level, the Jewish apocalypticism is the contrast. At a popular level, you'll usually just hear it said like, oh, Jesus came and he fulfilled the hopes of Israel. That's the same thing as realized eschatology. It's just kind of at a more popular level. For a lot of people, for most people, I would say, definitely throughout church history. So that's if you, you know, read Kendall Solon's book, The God of Israel and Christian Theology, that's basically what happens over and over is that Jesus fulfills the hope of Israel at the first coming. Most people don't see that as a problem. That's actually been gospel mm. for a lot of Christian theological tradition and a lot within the academy today. That's actually the good news that Jesus is fulfilling all of those, those Jewish hopes through the church. I don't see that as a good thing because the Gentile church is a train wreck. <laughs> it's been, it's been a train wreck for 2000 years, right? right. So <laughs> that is not a positive thing for me. And I don't see a utopia happening anytime soon through a fallen Gentile church. No, or for the Jewish people. Yeah, it's always been our dream to to be scattered and have our homeland taken away and all these. Yeah, just, right. yeah this is it. For us, it's a problem because it substantially changes the presumed Jewish apocalyptic narrative that's happening in the New Testament. And there's just not much evidence for it. Uh, all of those three novelties, the death of the Messiah, the gift of the Spirit, and the mission to the Gentiles— Paul never talks about those three things as the fulfillment of Jewish eschatology, as the fulfillment of some future hope. And so if he did understand those things as realized eschatology or the fulfillment of Jewish eschatology, he would say it clearly. And the same with Jesus in the Gospels. If, if Jesus viewed his ministry as the fulfillment of Jewish eschatology, he would say it really clearly. I use the example of like the pyramids. We all know what we're talking about when I say the pyramids, because everybody knows what the pyramids are. But if somebody comes along and says the pyramids are really just a spiritual principle of triangularity, <laughs> then you need to clarify that you mean a spiritual principle and that you're not talking about a specific ethnic people and a place and a time and a big stack of bricks. And, you know, so it's like that with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God was for second temple Jews was associated with Jewish eschatology, the resurrection, the day of God, the judgment, the age to come. If we're talking about a spiritual principle of manifesting divine sovereignty, that's independent of that and transcends that, then we need to be clear that that change of definition is happening, but it just doesn't happen in the Gospels. Besides a like two or three verses that are always taken severely out of context. So that's, you know, our main problem with it is that there's just not real evidence for it. And it 
it has radical implications that uh, seem to be problematic. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, everything I read about what he says is just setting up for the next level, the next step of redemption, not that everything has been <laughs> realized yeah. now. I mean, right. even the night before his death, he says, you know, I'm looking forward to to continuing right. this yeah. right. this observance with you in the kingdom of right. God, <laughs> which is not today. <laughs> so It reminded me of the first part of Acts, and I think you guys um, mentioned this in one of your early episodes. You know, Jesus had a lot of opportunities, even like after he came back from the dead, to tell the disciples, and they even asked him, right? They're like, hey, so when when are all the Jew- Jewish eschatological expectations going to be fulfilled? Yeah. When are you going right. to restore the kingdom right. to Israel? Um, yes, yes. And it's just like he, he gives the worst <laughs> answer ever if you're expecting right. him to say, like, right. what are you talking about? Your Jewish nationalistic expectation. Like, haven't you read uh, Boltzmann? You know, he doesn't say um, – <laughs> He doesn't say any of that. He's he's like I can't like I can't tell you, um, just, yeah. but uh, he, he doesn't say like it's not going to. It's a surprise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a that is a big yeah. issue for Christians sometimes to to read it in that terms. And, and I think if you can if you can get past the idea that it would make the apostles or their writings fallible if they didn't know the timing of the redemption. Then the, then the New Testament actually makes a lot more sense. Yeah. The things that they talk about. Paul, Paul constantly talking about, he thinks that he's going to be there when the Lord descends. You know, those of us who remain, you know, will be caught up in the air and things like that. But he's, he says things like that constantly. Once you just kind of accept, like, Jesus didn't want them to know. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus wanted them to play out the things that he taught them in the 40 days, right, about the kingdom of God, he wanted those things to play out among the nations without sort of any regard for the 2,000-year whatever gap in between his coming and the, and, the, uh, and the redemption. Once you can accept that, the apostolic writings make a lot more sense. Just that one little key. Yeah, yeah. I, I work with college students all the time, and I tell them, you know, it works really well for them when I say, hey, what if you showed up to class on the first day and your professor says, all right, we've covered some material. We're going to have an exam really soon versus <laughs> if the professor said you show up to class and the first day happens, say, oh, you've got an exam at the end of the semester. Ah. The students are going to have a different response to that if they say, okay, the exam's really soon. I should go home. I should study a little bit. I should be prepared as opposed to, oh, the exam's in, in 2000 years. Well, let's sit back. Let's establish a structure. <laughs> let's kind of just chill. You know, eventually the Gentiles <laughs> might hear about this, whatever. Right. So, so the answer that Jesus gives in Acts one, well, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, right? The Kairos and the, and the Kronos. Like, it's not for you to know, but go and be my witnesses. Go and take up your calling to be a light to the nations. And that's, I think, what fuels their urgency. Uh, and, and it's what we see throughout their letters uh, and why they have the urgency they do, because the Messiah is coming soon and he's going to establish the kingdom and raise the dead and punish the wicked and reward the righteous and do everything Jewish eschatology expects the Messiah to do. Well, Jacob, it turns out we're not the only ones who think the Jewish context of the gospel message is important. What a relief. Yeah, and and not just like, uh, I mean, not 
one of these guys has written a, a, quite the book, you know, an academic book. But these are uh, out there, like working in the in the fields, right? These are people mm-hmm. who are doing yeah. ministry, and I think that someone who writes a book is going to have one kind of influence. But these people are, are out there on the front lines, so to speak, of uh, of Christian ministry promoting this perspective you know this what yes. the, think about what that means it means like new baby christians are are going to be uh, like on the right foot on their theology exactly and i just hope we can get more and more and more of these guys i hope so too it's been a real encouragement to meet bill john and josh today if you enjoyed our conversation you can find the apocalyptic gospel podcast on all the usual podcast platforms and be sure to check out their website at apocalypticgospel.com spell at your own risk thanks for joining us today on messiah podcast if you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at ffoz.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Stephanie Hammond. And I'm Jacob Fronzak. Shalom. Next time on Messiah Podcast. Modern Christianity is viewing God and viewing the gospel in terms of spiritual entitlements. This is just death for faith. It can be sort of a stumbling block for a lot of people, the idea of election. The end game for most believers in the West is actually the American dream. We really want to put this vision before disciples. This is a much better narrative to conform your life to. That's a powerful one for our time and place, I think. It really does take the power of the Holy Spirit to make a Gentile rejoice in the hope of Israel. Tune in next time to hear the rest of our conversation with the guys from the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast. Like the waters cover the sea